The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for gathering us here today to hear from you. You've created the church, you've created the opportunity to gather together, to assemble, to encourage one another, to build up one another. And in this moment, you also have designed for us to hear from you, to gather together beneath your spirit as he teaches us. So would you do that this morning, Lord? Would you open up your word and by your spirit teach your people? Build us up towards your ends by your means. So make the word run, make it, make it sing, make it sweet, make it sting if it's needed, but would you just carry it forward? Each one of us here coming from different places, we have different needs. Will you speak? Will you show us particularly something of Jesus this morning? Something of who he is and how he is, something of his authority. We're all in different places, we all have different needs, but somehow would you connect that basic point to where each of us sits, will you affect us, will you grow us and change us, deepen us, and encourage, convict perhaps, but build your church, Lord, this morning, please, by your word and the power of your spirit. That's what we look to you to do. Thank you for your, your intention and for your promise to build your church. Thank you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's often very important in life to be able to recognize who's in charge. We need to know who to listen to, who to make a request of, who to bring a problem to, who has the right to make something happen. You know, the, the clerk at the register can give you a discount, but of course only the manager can sign off and make it legit. Somehow we need to know who's in charge because authority, actual authority can make something happen or not happen and make it last and carry on in the right way. And if we don't know who that is or where that's coming from, we, we kind of are unsettled. We want to know, we need to know who's in charge. And that brings us to the issue presented in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. These two chapters have many short stories gathered together, stitched together here, linked by various ideas here and there, but over all of them flies the subject of the authority of Jesus. Seen in all these stories, and particularly relevant, coming as it does, right after the Sermon on the Mount. We just spent several months looking at that extended teaching from Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We move through all that, what we saw, it is amazing, it's provocative, it's deep, it's bold. Jesus laid out in front of us what the Christian is in, in basic characteristics and what the Christian life then is like and what it's not like. And then he finished by pointing out the certain coming judgment of God over all of the earth, the judgment that Jesus said that he himself would execute. He said that he would execute judgment in relation to himself and his own words. That is a bold, bold statement. Jesus says that Jesus is going to judge everybody on earth according to how they respond to Jesus. 
That's something. And as we saw last week, after he finished Matthew's first editorial comments to us who are the readers of this, were to remark that those who heard this sermon were astonished at it because of the authority in it. He taught as one having authority, not like the usual teachers, not, not like the scribes. People heard the claims in this sermon. They felt the power in these claims and were amazed by it and probably at points somewhat taken aback by it because the stuff he says here, so much of what he says could make one run, wonder, can you, can you say that? I mean, he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you, can you say that? So much of the sermon is, is so bold. Does he have the right to make that sort of a claim? Can, really? Astonishing claims. Is he actually entitled to say those things? Does he have the authority to say that, like he seems to say that he does? And chapters 8 and 9 then say, essentially, yes, watch. Jesus claims to be the ruler and the judge, claims to be the one in authority over all the creation, claims to be the one that all the Old Testament was pointing towards, claims to be the one who fulfills it all himself, who completes it, who finishes it, who gives it the proper weight and authority and glory that it was all meant to have. He says that about himself, claims that he's the one rightfully that it's all pointing to, and then now he's going to say, and let me show you that. Let me prove it to you. Eight and nine, story after story after story after story. That's where we're going this morning, beginning with the first story in chapter eight, verses one to four. We're going to look at that, we're going to, we're going to read it, and then we're going to draw two observations from it as we begin to see J Jesus showing his right to rule, his authority. So this is Matthew eight, one to four. Let me read the passage and then draw two observations from it. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Matthew 8, verses 1 to 4. Here's the first observation, then. This is much longer than the second one. The will of Jesus, Jesus' will, what he wants, the will of Jesus is divinely authoritative, and sweetly merciful. The will of Jesus is divinely authoritative and sweetly merciful. Verse 1 is the transition verse from the setting of the Sermon on the Mount back into the traveling ministry of healing and teaching that Jesus had been engaged in. And as before, we saw this at the end of chapter 4, before the Sermon on the Mount, there are great crowds following him everywhere, and they, and they still are. 
However, what we get beginning in verse 2 is not a chronologically ordered travelogue. It's not this happened, then this, then this, then this, then this. And we know because we can compare these, these stories to the other Gospels and we can see they happened everywhere. He's kind of gathered them all together here. He's taken a bunch of events and put them in an order related to by themes and by words. And sometimes Matthew just starts a new story by saying, Behold, look, something noteworthy like he does in verse 2. Behold, a leper. A very interesting first story. Not because it happened first. It's here first because of what leprosy was all about. Your footnote probably, if you have a Bible, your footnote probably tells you that leprosy was kind of a general term that covered a number of different very serious skin diseases. We can sort them out medically ourselves, but back then they couldn't. They all just kind of looked all alike, and leprosy is kind of the headliner because of how terrible it was. It was so very serious. The rotting of skin leading eventually to the destruction of the body. It was a frightful thing. We see some of that in the story in Exodus 11 where God cursed Miriam, Moses' sister. Moses and Aaron were rebelling against Moses and God cursed Miriam by striking her with leprosy. And even Moses, who God is defending in the moment, Moses is shocked and heartbroken as he pleads with God to cleanse her. And he eventually did. But the, the physical horror of leprosy was very clear. But the religious and social devastation was actually what was most focused on by people in that time. The religious and the social devastation. Like many afflictions, leprosy back then rendered a person spiritually unclean, which meant that one could not come into the presence of the pure and holy God to worship him. All of the, the Old Testament laws that circle around clean and unclean are trying to show something that unclean is cut off from, cannot come into the presence of the clean, the holy, the pure one. So in the time of the Old Testament, this is a little bit difficult for us to imagine here today where we sit in the New Testament, but in the time of the Old Testament, the Spirit of God uniquely dwelled not in the same way in individual Christians, individual believers, but uniquely dwelled in the place, the building, and even the inner part of the building of the temple. Remember how the, the psalmist would talk about how he longs to go into the presence of God, which means he longs to go to the temple where God's spirit uniquely dwells. Today, if, if we are, if you're a Christian and you're like sick and alone all by yourself off somewhere, you can still be intimately communing with God and worshiping him because we are the temple. Each Christian is the temple. And God's spirit, now this is the beauty of the New Testament, the new covenant, God's spirit lives within you, so you take him with you wherever you go. Not so back in the Old Testament. He's in this place in the center of this one building, in this one city, in this one place. And a leper cannot go anywhere near that. Unclean. No one clean person could, in fact. But of course, the other types of unclean statuses, they passed away. You could offer a sacrifice. You could sometimes just wait 24 hours, let the sun set and then rise and then it's over. And you can come back here. But the leper, as long as you have leprosy, you remain unclean. 
So stay away. Stay away from God. And stay away from other people too. To interact with lepers was unheard of and to touch them was forbidden. Because you'd make yourself ceremonially unclean and might well become medically infected and sick. So there's tremendous social ostracism here. There's, there's people cut off from lepers. There's a spiritual alienation and a social alienation. It is doomed life lived apart while your body literally falls apart. It's easy to see why leprosy was regarded as a unique, particular curse from God. The disease was almost never overcome led to devastating results, needed miraculous divine intervention if there was to be any hope. People back then, you could see occasionally in the Old Testament, lepers were healed with the same frequency that the dead were raised. It was very rare. To heal leprosy, to cleanse leprosy, was about like raising the dead. Here comes a leper. Matthew puts this story first, immediately, verse 2. Well, we don't get the crowd response. There, there certainly were people around, and they would have parted like the Red Sea to get away from this guy. This is not socially acceptable. A leper came to Jesus and knelt before him. There are a couple of really interesting wrinkles here in the, in the simple setup. It is a simple setup, and you can read it just like this. You can read it straight across. So you can say, yep, that's what happened. But there are a couple things here that just kind of make you say like, hmm, hmm. Matthew intends for us to read this and say, hmm. The leper came and knelt before him. It's, it's the word for kneel, sure, yep. And it's also the word used to kneel in worship, to worship someone. So you see him kneeling, and it's almost as if he's like, is he, has he come to worship, in fact? Hmm, interesting. Especially because he calls him Lord. Now, again, right across the surface, Lord, we shouldn't make too much of that because Lord is a word commonly used to mean just sir. It's a, it's a way of respectfully addressing somebody. But we, while we shouldn't make too much of it, we also should keep in mind, you know, we did just last week read a passage where Jesus made much of that term, of people who call him Lord, Lord, and don't submit to him, don't respect him, don't do what he says, and here comes a leper who kneels in front of him to worship and calls him Lord, and then reveals that unlike the folks we talked about last week, he knows very much what it means that Jesus is Lord. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. What's he saying? Jesus, I know that you are absolutely in charge of all of this. All of this. I know that the only thing that stands between me being cleansed of this curse is if you want that to happen. So, please, Lord, on his knees in front of the Lord, so, please, Lord. 
There's no question of power or ability here. That is completely assumed. Do you want me to be cleansed or not? That's the only question. Your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I know that, he says. Do you will that I be clean, that I be delivered? This guy gets it. He understands who Jesus is and what it means to call him Lord. He knows who's in charge. Do you will that I be cleansed? Verse 3, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And the crowd, <laughs> no kidding. The crowd gasped, shuddered perhaps. In that moment, probably they couldn't figure out in, in the split second which was worse, infecting himself and giving himself a death sentence or that this man here, this teacher who is supposedly a holy man, a religious guy, just rendered himself ceremonially unclean on purpose as if it doesn't matter to him. What? We, we have a difficult time getting inside these categories. This would have been shocking. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Seth doesn't quite put it like that. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Cleansing, that's the issue. Make me clean, I will. Be clean, he was cleansed. Cleansing is the issue. That's what happened. Jesus touched him, and Jesus didn't become physically contaminated, nor did he become ceremonially unclean, because in the moment of contact, cleansing flum flows from Jesus to the unclean one. All the Old Testament laws about clean and unclean, they're all trying to show something. God, God set up a very elaborate system to show unclean, you know, the status that separates you from me, unclean comes at you from all the normal parts of life. People become unclean for having a baby, for having sex, for touching and burying dead people. You can't not be unclean. It comes from the natural parts of life, and it comes to you, and then it spreads from the unclean one to other people. Sin comes from normal life and spreads. That's the point. Except from Jesus, that's not how it works. From Jesus spreads clean. The exact opposite. Cleansing happens when Jesus touches. He spreads cleansing. He contacts him. The man is cleansed. The curse is removed, not by some medicine, not by a spell, not by praying and asking God, but simply by the will of Jesus. And that's the first lesson to be learned and dependent on here. The will of Jesus is what is most important. It is determinative, in fact. His will is divinely authoritative. Other people in the Bible heal others from other diseases, even heal from leprosy. Old Testament prophet did that. 
But in all those other cases, no matter what it is, all the other cases, what is extremely clear is that there is always a dependence on God. There's a prayer offered to him. There's a sacrifice offered. There's a prophet whose whole life is about dependence on God and seeking out his will. All the other instances of healing reveal that this is all going on beneath God, except here where Jesus just says, you're right. What I want is what happens. Because what I want is God wanting. My will is the will of God. Let's be really clear about that. He is not saying, I want the same thing God wants. No, no. If you look at me wanting something, you're looking at God wanting. You got it right. I'm Lord. This is certainly important. We must be really clear about this. Not only this, but certainly this. We must be clear about this as we evaluate Jesus' right to teach what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And as we evaluate Jesus' right to teach everything else he teaches, because of course he says lots of other things too, right? Not, not just the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to teach a lot more stuff. His will is divinely authoritative. He's not sharing one perspective among many. The way, the truth, and therefore the life. But additionally, not just about teaching, but we need to keep that authority in mind as we look at, at a world all around us, we look out at a world around us and look at ourselves even, trapped in the leprosy, so to speak. Leprosy is the quintessential human predicament. Locks people out of God's presence and out of a life of real, true flourishing. It's a doomed life. It's living death. Life under curse. That's leprosy. So if you drop the metaphor and just see what it's intended to point at, we see spiritual death and spiritual blindness all around us, spiritual hardness, spiritual ignorance, spiritual arrogance, spiritual folly. Look at, at the world, we look at ourselves, and we see destruction, even self-destruction, and realize that it's due to darkness and fall and sin and deception. It's the effects of the curse. Of, of the curse. We see loved ones in that. We see friends and neighbors. And, and if you look out and see people around you, maybe, maybe you just see you know, the general public or you see people that you deeply care about or you see yourself even, experiencing some acute pain from the fall, some, some kind of affliction, life under the curse. You see that. So pause for a second and say, where do you see that? Look at that. We don't see the physical ailment of leprosy, but we see what leprosy is pointing at all the time. It is around us. Where do you see that? Spiritual blindness or deception or sinful choices being made, whatever the devastating effect is, look at that and remember. Jesus stands in authority over all of it. 
in authority over all of it. We often forget this or discount it. We don't officially forget it, but we just kind of say, yes, I know, but, and we look out at chaos and destruction and go a couple of different ways. We either go into hyper-work mode because, boy, we've got stuff to do, and we lean into our own resources, and, and we attempt to teach or preach or love or serve or in some way coerce, if you put some worse words on this, manipulate, bribe, shame, change. Some of those things are right. Some of those things we should do. We should teach. We should, we should serve. We should love. Yes. But the problem I'm pointing out is we set aside Jesus here and we think like, I've got to do something about this. Maybe it's the world in general. Maybe it's my, maybe it's my loved one. It's, it's my spouse or my, my parent or my child or my neighbor or someone that I have to affect. And we forget, in fact, there is one who stands over all of it and is sovereign. Go to him. Go to him. Take the need to him. We go, we go into work mode and forget him. We forget to take things to him. And secondly, when you go into work mode, what happens is you then are a half step away from anxiety, fear, and despair. Because you notice, that doesn't work. Work mode doesn't work. You can't, we can't teach people, share to people, love people, serve people into life and into the kingdom. We can't heal leprosy. Try as we might. Work mode is a half step down the path towards despair, and the answer is there is one who is sovereign over all of it. Go to him. Take it to him and leave it there. Lord, your will be done. Please, I ask for this. We do indeed, I'm, I'm not saying we don't have anything to do, we do indeed have a part that God means us to play. But apart from him, we can do nothing. That's not just a verse in the Bible, that's reality. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Take need to him. Your will, Lord, will be done. Make it done. Please act. You are able, Lord. Please do this, Lord. And right next to that, even in the story, right next to that, strong incentive to take it to him. The will of Jesus is not just divinely authoritative, but it is also sweetly merciful towards all who come to him. That's sweet here. It's right, right in the story. That's why the leper dared to come. Not just because he knew that Jesus was his only hope, but also because he knew that Jesus was his hope. L look at the story again. Think about this and see in it the heart of the omnipotent one. It is easy to think of God maybe I could put it like this. I'll say it like this. It is easy to think of 
God. The Almighty. It's easy to think of the Holy, Holy, Holy One. You can say it like that, right? And that creates an impression. And to be fair, it is important to keep passages like Isaiah 6 in mind where the angels say the holy, holy, holy one in heaven itself shakes and smokes. Heaven itself shakes and smokes. It is appropriate in part to talk like that. Maybe not to use that kind of put on aura, but to talk like that about God and remember he's holy, holy, holy and to have a little bit of the shaking and the smoking, that is appropriate. But it is very easy. There is something in us from the garden that says, and that God says, get the heck away from me. It's very easy to think like that about God, the holy, holy, holy one. He's probably frustrated and maybe even furious with my uncleanness. With the sin and the mess and the wreckage that I've made of my life, the sinful, stupid choices I've made, not like 10 years ago, I mean yesterday, this morning. Now, there's a way you can get around that. You can just deny you've ever done that. But let's be real. You and I are fools. We're sinners and fallen. We're wrecks. Now, I combed my hair and brushed my teeth this morning and I put on a shirt that was, I think, clean. But there's a lot in me that's black and dark. You too. And if you talk about God, the Holy One, for a second, you think about it, you see, he sees right through the shirt, right past the brushed teeth, and he sees all the yuck, and he's probably, something's whispering in my ear, he's probably saying, get the heck away from me. You unclean one, separate. He sees all the, the ignorance that I've stewed in and spewed out, and it's easy to imagine that if I was to possibly easy for you to imagine that if you were to possibly just perhaps screw up the courage to, to say, Lord, this is the mess I've made. Uh, I have nowhere else to go. This is the mess I've made. Will you please, I'm broken and sinful. Can you please, I wonder if you might, he would say, what? So you run out, you wreck everything, and then you come back. Sure. Get away from me. Come back when you've fixed everything. Come back when you've made yourself worthy. That works in our minds really naturally, and in fact, there's a whole religion. Most religions are designed like that, exactly. Right around here, the religion of, the, of right around here is, here's what God has done to help us. He's told us how to shape up. He's given us a message. Here's how you make yourself worthy. When you've done that, come back and we'll talk, and I'll help you out with what remains. That's peddled as the gospel. It's not. It's not. The God who is, is not laying out in front of us how we can shape up, willing to talk after we've made ourselves worthy. After you've done what you can do, then I'll come in, I'll help you with the rest. That is not the truth, that is not how God is, that's not who he is. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Jesus is gonna say exactly that in a few chapters here in Matthew. Here, 
all he says is, my heart's desire is to make you clean. I'm glad you came near and asked. I'm glad you came near and asked. Yes. Come back. Hear that if you are far off. That's the heart of God. Does he see past the cover and see the blackness within? Yeah, absolutely. And says, I'm glad you came near. I'm eager to cleanse. I make clean. Come. See that if you're far off. And remember that if you're near but struggling. If you're near, what I mean is if you're, if you're a Christian and you know that, but you know, ah, I'm not in a good place right now. Okay. He knows that. His heart is not only omnipotence and might, but it is mercy and kindness, grace towards the humble. He wants to cleanse you from sin and its effects, wants to draw you back into communion with himself, wants to draw you back into the community of his people, to give you a seat at his table and to lay out in front of you everything that you need, a feast. Come and ask him. Don't try to fix yourself. You can't. You can't. Don't try to fix yourself. Only he can ask, seek, and knock. He will answer. He wants to, in fact. He's waiting to. He's eager to, in fact. Come seeking. Come repenting. Come admitting you need his cleansing power to restore you. He is merciful. He will receive you. He will help. That's the point of the gospel. That's the whole point of the gospel. He was cut off. He was made unclean. He was set apart from God as the Father turned his face away and hung him on the cross under the curse so that you could be cleansed and brought near. That's the whole point. The gospel is not about how you show yourself worthy. It's how you show yourself desperately in need and Jesus shows himself mighty and merciful. Sweetly merciful and mighty to cleanse to make you new. Remember that if you're far off. Remember that if you're near and struggling. He makes clean. Cleansing flows out of him to those he touches. Come near and ask. He'll make you clean again. He'll bring you back into the communion of the people of God. Restore you. Come. The will of Jesus is authoritative and merciful. See that and remember that. And also then we've got one more point to consider, much shorter. Here's the second observation. The authority of Jesus is confirmed as it fulfills and surpasses the Old Testament law. This is a slightly more technical point, but we'll come around to something for us at the very end. The authority of Jesus is confirmed as it fulfills and surpasses the Old Testament law. In verse 4, Jesus makes a, a statement that has several parts to it, and I think we kind of need to walk through part by part by part before we get to the end and kind of see what it, what it means. First, he tells the now healed man, see that you say nothing to anybody, which isn't an absolute statement. People are going to find out. 
people are going to find out. There are people standing there. We don't know how big the crowd is, but there are people around who saw this happen. It's, it can't remain a, a secret, a, a total secret for forever. But what he means is you're going to travel from here. Remember, they're in Galilee to the north. You're going to travel from here down to the temple in Jerusalem. And please don't tell everybody all along the way what happened. Now, in the other Gospels, you realize that he did tell everybody all along the way what happened. But Jesus told him not to because he's going to spread all through the land this message. The healing of leprosy was widely regarded to be a sign that the messianic age had dawned. In other words, this guy who just did this must be the Messiah, but people completely misunderstand what Messiah means right now. So Jesus does not want a false message about him spread far and wide. It's just going to complicate things. I don't need, that's, that's going to happen, but I don't need to pour gasoline on the fire right now, so please do not tell anyone about this. But rather, second phrase, go show yourself to the priest of the temple and offer the gift that Moses prescribed. So when there was a claim that a person had been healed from leprosy, there was a process to go about certifying that that it, in fact, was leprosy to start with and that it had, in fact, been cleansed. A lot of details about this. You can read Leviticus 14. A lot of details there. So go to the priest, Jesus says, and do exactly that. Come to him, tell him about this, have him investigate it, and then certify this cleansing. And then offer the gift, the sacrifice, and the altar that you're supposed to do. Do that exactly, says Jesus. And as he says that, Jesus is putting himself beneath, if you will, right in, in concord with the Old Testament law. He's conforming to Moses. Remember at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I don't, I don't come to abolish the law, I come to fulfill it. It's all pointing towards me. I'm coming to give it additional weight, additional gravity, to show the glory that it was all about, to fill it. means all the Old Testament, including the law, including Leviticus 14, the bit about leprosy, it's all pointing towards Jesus. It's all prophesying about him. He's come to fulfill it, including the part about cleansing and the Messiah. And so... Here it is. The details aren't spelled out, and really that's not the issue. The man is going to walk into the temple in Jerusalem. He's going to walk through this process and offer up this gift. He's going to tell the priest what happened. He's going to recount verses 2 and 3 about Jesus. And then the priest is going to have to pronounce, well, you are cleansed of leprosy. And I will have to write that down. Everybody knows you had leprosy. And then here's a certificate. You don't have leprosy anymore. I certify that. Stamped it. And with that certificate, you will be readmitted to the community, his hometown, probably back in Galilee. Following this whole process puts it all on record, you might say, unavoidably on record. I was a leper. I am now clean. By the will of Jesus, the priest says so. And this would be a proof to them. End of verse 4. And now here we are to the point. 
the word there actually for proof, the word is witness or testimony. Some of your translations may put it like that. Moses talked about how one would be cleansed of leprosy, restored to communion with God and with God's people. Well, that just happened in Jesus. A piece of evidence submitted in the court of everyone's mind. Moses talked about how that would happen. That just happened in Jesus. What am I going to do with that? Here's the divine authority. Here's the sweet mercy that cleanses. A testimony to them, to you. What are you going to do with that? It's a great story. Glad you know it. What are you going to do with it? Will you come kneel before him, poor in spirit, mourning over your predicament, over your needs, your uncleanness, your sin and your brokenness, asking him to make you clean and restore you and your world to life? He's eager. He wants you to. He's waiting. Will you come, poor in spirit and mourning, and ask? and seek and knock. If he's willing, he can cleanse you. And he's willing. This is the piece of testimony. You have to respond to it. Let me pray. Lord, would you, for each one of us, we're all in different places, some far off, some near but struggling, some of us will be tomorrow. Will you speak this witness to each of us about the power and the mercy of Jesus? Speak to us about how he is and who he is and incline us towards him for ourselves and for others in humble dependence. Will you make us a people who pray, who depend on you? And will you then restore? Will you fix what's broken? Will you cleanse what's ruined? Knit us back together, Lord. Make us clean. Thank you for your willingness. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.